first reading tonight is from Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 27, which is on page 1033 of the Church Bibles. Um, Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Um, the second reading is from Revelation chapter 3, which is on page 1235. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy." He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but I will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Gemma. We'll keep a paw in uh, Revelation 3 while I tell you a riddle. See if you can work this one out. A man comes into work and there's a big brown envelope in his in tray and he uh, opens it and he looks at the content and he turns to his colleague sitting next to him and he says, I'm a dead man. Now, to look at him, he obviously appears very healthy. He's not a contract killer or involved in crime. He doesn't work for MI6 or anything like that. So what was in that envelope? Well, the answer is it was an X-ray. And it was his X-ray. And the man was an oncologist. So one look at his own X-ray, and he can tell that he's a dead man or as good as a dead man. He's still alive, but looking at it, it doesn't look good. Okay, we're back in Revelation chapter 3. It'll all make sense eventually. Uh, Shall we just pray as we look at this chapter together? Lord, each of these letters tells us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So as we look at this passage, we pray that you would indeed speak to us and that we, you'd give us listening hearts and indeed obedient hearts. For Jesus' sake. Amen. 
So Revelation chapter 3, um, for those of you who are visiting, we ha- are doing a series going through the seven letters to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Um, if you've come here hoping for a carol service, my apologies, um, you're a week late for that. We had a, a cracking carol service last Sunday, um, but, uh, and we got a, a cracking carol later on. But this is more of an Advent theme. This evening, we're in the season of Advent. Strictly speaking, Christmas doesn't begin until Christmas Day. It's just the church gets a little bit excited ahead of time. And Advent is looking ahead to the coming of Jesus, not uh, just as a baby at Bethlehem, but also his return, his promised return as the King of glory. And we'll see that later on in this passage. But uh, as we read this letter to Sardis, It's as if Jesus is sending this church in modern-day Turkey an X-ray of their spiritual condition. Jesus is not fooled by the outward appearance of a seemingly healthy church. Rather, he looks at the heart. And as we heard in our first reading, Jesus likens himself to a doctor. And rather as a doctor might have his own medical certificates pinned to the wall to kind of reassure people that he is a properly qualified doctor, prove his credentials. So Jesus introduces himself, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, these are the words of him, that is Jesus, who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, if you turn over the page to chapter 5, verse 6, you'll see that the seven spirits are the seven eyes of Jesus. And so he's really saying that he has eyes in the back of his head. He sees everything. And then chapter 1, verse 20, tells us that the seven stars are the seven angels or the seven messengers. So in chapter 3, verse 1, when he says he is holding these things, It is basically saying that Jesus is in control. Jesus is Lord of the church. And when, in verse 1, he says, I know your deeds, we know he knows. And the fact that Jesus knows the church, he knows us inside out and through and through, is both reassuring and challenging. It's reassuring that Jesus, who is the Lord of the church, holds the church in his hands. And perhaps as we worry about, you know, declining church figures and all that kind of thing, um, it's great to know that Jesus is the Lord of the church. And he's got us, St. Michael's, in his hand too. It's also challenging because Jesus' x-ray eyes can see everything. And that's what we're really looking at today. Because in this letter to Sardis, Jesus is rather like the good doctor who gives us, first of all, a diagnosis. Secondly, he prescribes some treatment. And third, he gives us a prognosis. So come with me, please, into the consulting room of Dr. Jesus. Alongside us in the waiting room is the church in Sardis. 
But, of course, this is a letter written to all churches. If you remember, all of these verses, uh, sorry, all of these letters end with the verse, like verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's not just to Sardis. It is obviously to Sardis, but it's to the wider churches. And there's something in these letters for every church, including us today. So first, Jesus' diagnosis. A little bit about Sardis, first of all. It had a reputation for being a confident city. It was brilliantly located up on the uh, top of a, a ridge of mountains. So it's very easy to defend. And it was also on uh, great trade routes uh, through, as you can see, to uh, Constantinople, through to the Middle East. And it was a very commercially successful city, and it was powerful. It was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. And the Sardians used to boast that they would never fall. But in fact, they fell twice. First, to the Emperor Cyrus of Persia, uh, and uh, also to Alexander the Great. And on both occasions, they were infiltrated by night because they left no guards, because they thought they were impregnable. So the city fell. Sardis was too confident, too secure, and too smug. And just as with the city, so with the church. And Dr. Jesus' x-ray eyes see behind this facade. Look at the end of verse 1. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. It's fairly unequivocal there, fairly uncompromising. And unlike the other churches that Jesus writes to in Revelation, there's nothing here that Jesus praises because the church is dead or as good as dead. There's no shortage of activity. They have a big reputation. No doubt the church ran a very full program of Sunday services, midweek activities, children's church, Christmas fairs, summer fates, the whole caboodle. The visitor might say, what a wonderful church. I hear you've got a great reputation. I've heard about this church. And Jesus says, well, you may have a big reputation, but you're about to die. And some parts are already dead. And he's rather like this doctor breaking bad news to his patient. In verse 2, he says, I've not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. In the sight of men, the church looks great. But Jesus' verdict is that it's dead or dying. And unlike the other churches who are condemned for what they do, the church in Sardis is condemned for what it doesn't do. It's, it's incomplete. And if we want to know what a complete church looks like, we just look back to Thyatira, the previous church, chapter 2, verse 19, that lovely catalogue of um, virtues that Jesus praises, you may remember. But chapter 2, verse 19, uh, their love, their faith, their service, their perseverance. But Sardis, none of these is commended. They have a full program, great reputation, but they're just going through the motions. People are just turning up. 
There's no love for people. No sign of real faith. There's no service, no sacrificial giving of oneself to the rest of the people. No perseverance, perhaps when the going gets tough or just life's too busy, they stop turning up. Now the Scots have a phrase for a building that has a rather grand exterior, rather like this one. They say, Queen Anne in front, but with a Mary Anne behind. It's not very polite, but it's basically, uh, in fact, I'm not quite sure where that is, but it could be a lot of buildings around here, couldn't they? You notice the sort of very fine stucco fronts of uh, Belgravia and Pimlico. Go around the back and you'll see dirty red brick. Queen Anne in front, all Mary Anne behind. Now, how does a church that was once going so well flounder so badly? Well, just turn back with me for a moment to 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul gives a description of the church in the last days. This is page 1196. Timothy chapter 3, Paul's talking about terrible times in the last days, and of course the last days are any time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And he says, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Just notice what the people here love and what they don't love. Verse 2, they're lovers of self and money. And verse 4, they're lovers of pleasure. And the things they don't love, verse 3, they're not lovers of the good And verse 4, they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They don't love God. And this is the church that Paul is writing about. Verse 5, they have a form of godliness. So they're making out that they're believers, but they deny its power. Queen Anne in front, Mary Anne behind. And Jesus' diagnosis is pretty devastating. Back in Revelation chapter 3, He says, you're as good as dead. In fact, he says, you are dead. Sort of dead man walking, as it were. So, that's the really bleak diagnosis. Come with me now to the second point. Dr. Jesus' treatment. Verse 2. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard, obey it, and repent. So he gives us five urgent imperatives. And just as in his earthly ministry, Jesus healed the dying and raised the dead, so today, wonderfully, Jesus can do just the same spiritually. He can raise moribund churches. He can bring life to dead churches. And it's wonderful when you see that happen. But of course, the patient needs to cooperate We need to take the medicine. 
So these five imperatives are, are, are commands for the church to follow. The first course of action is to wake up. And if our Christian life is simply a formality or we're rather stuck in a rut or simply going through the motions with no desire to grow, then I think this is a word for us today. It's good to examine ourselves, as it were, to take a look at our spiritual x-ray and ask ourselves, does Jesus look at the x-ray of my life and say it's incomplete? Does Jesus see sinful attitudes in my life with no desire to change? Or patterns of behavior that don't honor Christ and no attempt to address it? If that's the case, he says to us, wake up. The second course of action is strengthen what remains. And I think the picture here is rather like that of uh, fanning dying embers of a fire back into life. Or perhaps better put, allowing God's Holy Spirit to fan those dying embers back into life, to breathe his life into our lives. But the call here is to cultivate the inner life. We're told to strengthen what remains. So perhaps we should cultivate, a look, at, look at the church at Thyatira again, 2 verse 19. Uh, cultivate our love for Jesus and ask, what can I do to love Jesus more? Am I just going through the motions and singing the words but not really meaning it with all my heart? Or my faith, am I actually coming to him in prayer believing that I'm talking to the King of Kings who is alive and who listens and is powerful to act? Am I persevering in service or is my service rather half-hearted? Strengthen what remains, he says. Third course of action, verse 3, remember what you have received and heard. In other words, remember the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the gospel. Keep going back to the basics. Keep going back to the cross where Jesus died for our sins. Keep going back to the empty tomb Jesus rising to bring us victory over death and evil and sin. Keep going back to what we've heard in the gospel. The gospel is not just the way in to the Christian life. It's the way on in the Christian life. Now remembering is really important in the Bible. Both Old Testament and New Testament we're repeatedly urged to remember. Think of some of Jesus' last recorded words at the Last Supper, where he said, do this in remembrance of me, as he broke bread and poured out the wine. And that's what we'll be doing in a few minutes, remembering the death of Jesus. But we don't just remember for remembrance's sake. The whole point of remembering is so that we act on what we're remembering. So a, a, a classic example would be the, uh, the birthday card or the anniversary card. The whole point of remembering a birthday or an anniversary is so that we can act on it and do something. Get out there, buy the flowers, buy the present, 
might buy the card. We remember so that we might do something. And biblical remembering is not just calling old truths to mind so that we can just kind of recite off the creed like an old professional. No, it's acting on them. So, for example, in the Old Testament, God constantly reminds his people, remember, you were slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God rescued you with mighty hand and outstretched arm. But it doesn't stop there. He says, so, love the Lord your God with all your heart. So, love your neighbor as yourself. So, don't forget the widow and the orphan. So, keep the Sabbath day. So, don't neglect the hungry. And so on. The whole point of remembering is that we act. And this leads us on to our fourth imperative, that we're not just to, um, to remember where to obey, where to live it out, to make Jesus' priorities our priorities. Now, obedience requires self-control and discipline, as illustrated here. It might go rather against our instincts. Self-control and discipline are not popular virtues. I'm sure if I wrote a book with that title, Self-Control and Discipline, it would not sell well. But Christian obedience is exactly that, isn't it? And it's essential treatment from the surgery of Dr. Jesus. And the fifth course of action is there again in verse, verse 3, repent. And of course, in the Bible, the word repent means a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. It would be pointless to drive past the, uh, the sign that says turn around and say, oh yeah, that's right. Uh, and just carry on. Repentance requires a conscious, deliberate act of the will to live differently, to live for Jesus. So here we have five very simple imperatives. There's nothing radically new, is there? You might even be thinking, this is so basic, I can't believe we're hearing this over again. But that's the point. It's so basic, and, and the church in Sardis had neglected it. The church in Sardis urgently needs to return. And so do we, if we're in danger of either living in the past or simply going through the formalities or just being on kind of nodding acquaintance with God and not really listening to him and obeying him, perhaps relying on our reputation, either individually or as a church. The doctor prescribes the treatment, but the patient needs to take responsibility for taking the medicine. So that's the third point. Uh, sorry, that's the second point. Third point is Jesus' prognosis, which contains both a warning and an encouragement. Second half of verse 3 is the warning if we don't take the treatment. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Jesus says he is coming like a thief in the night. He said so repeatedly in, in the Gospels, and it's repeated in the epistles. And just like Cyrus and Alexander the Great, so the church will be caught napping if we don't wake up. Jesus is coming back 
That's what Advent's all about. Will he find us ready? Forget the Christmas shopping. Please, are we ready for Jesus? I found, um, I, I know a number of us have been reading the Tim Chester's little devotional book a, day, a couple of pages a day through Advent. I found it so refreshing, just reminding myself who Jesus is and why he came and that he's coming again. And it's interesting, whenever Jesus talks about his return, and he talks about it a lot, I think it's about, on average, about one in every ten verses in the New Testament mentions the second coming. When Jesus talks about it in the Gospels, he always concludes with a phrase like, so I tell you, keep watch. And that's his caution to us too. But let's finish by rejoicing in the great encouragement that these verses give us as well. For those who hear Jesus' diagnosis and who take the treatment, for those who do wake up and act on Jesus' words, four lovely encouragements to finish with. Fantastic promises. The first is, verse 4, that we will walk with Jesus. Now, in the Bible, walking with God is a picture of intimacy. We read of um, Noah walking with God, of Enoch walking with God. And do you remember in Genesis chapter 3, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, looking for Adam. He wants to walk with him. Adam, where are you? And it's one of the great tragedies, isn't it, that Adam is hiding from God. But those who wake up and look to Jesus will walk with God. Second fantastic promise is that we will be dressed in white, verse 5. Now, white in the Bible, and especially in Revelation, is a picture of purity, having been washed clean by the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross and clothed with a robe of righteousness. Third promise, that we will have our names written in the book of life absolutely indelibly. Look at verse 5. I will never blot out his name from the book of life. The Bible tells us that God has a book. I don't know whether it's a real book or a metaphorical spiritual book, a kind of register in which the names of his people are recorded. And the promise here is that if we overcome Satan and the world and our own sin, our names are safely written in that book. Now, the Greek sentence here has a kind of double negative for emphasis. So it could be translated something like this. I will never, ever, by any possible means, ever blot out their names out of the book of life. Ever. Something like that. Now, when we die, our names are removed from all sorts of lists, aren't they? We're removed from the electoral register. We're removed from the telephone book. We're removed from the church database, from your school or university alumni list, from the NHS waiting list. But the one book that the overcomer can never have their name removed from is God's book of life. That is such a fantastic promise. It gives us such confidence. 
There's a hymn that I'm um, hoping we're going to learn called How Firm a Foundation. It's quite an old hymn, though it's got quite a kind of funky new tune, so that's okay. But the last verse goes like this. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, he will not, he cannot desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, he'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. And in fact, the, uh, for, this leads on to the fourth wonderful promise, that it's not just that Jesus won't forsake us, but there's a, a great party waiting to kick off in heaven for all those who persevere, who overcome, who listen to jo- Dr. Jesus's diagnosis and take Dr. Jesus's medicine. Second half of verse 5, I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. I don't know how it's going to be, but it's, it sounds like you know, Jesus is going to say, Father, can I introduce you to my friend, John, Sue, Andy, Sarah? Meet my father. Oh, and here's the angels, multitude of heavenly host. And God says, welcome. Welcome home, because that's where we belong. And well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us so much that you don't leave us as we are. We thank you that you came that first Christmas to be our saviour. Thank you for coming to die on the cross so that we could be put right with you. And thank you for these cautionary letters that you write to your churches just encouraging us to get back on track. And if we've slipped, we pray that we would wake up, that we'd get our house in order. And as we come to the end of Advent, a season of preparation for your coming, please may we be ready so that your coming won't be like a thief. Thank you for these wonderful promises that as we put our trust in you and walk with you, So you will walk with us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.